Thumbs up. We're ready. If you would, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 7. I want to go ahead and give you the title of this message. The message is dealing with Stephen, a faithful witness. And so that's what the title is, Stephen, a faithful witness. There's, there are a lot of verses. There are 60 verses in chapter 7. We actually need to look back at chapter 6 since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Acts to remind us to set the context of what's going on. But I hope to not overcomplicate and to not oversimplify the message this morning. And I am going to attempt to paint in much broader strokes than I normally do uh, to give us the overall theme and emphasis and flow of what's going on here in verse 7. But before we get to verse 7, let's go back and real quickly just look together at chapter 6, and we're, and we're going to walk through, uh, maybe make a few comments. It says, now, in these days, or Luke, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who's penned Luke's Acts, the book of Acts, he writes, now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. So here's Stephen mentioned. And he is described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now that's the quickest I've ever covered seven verses in my whole life. Continuing on. And Stephen, so focusing on Stephen, one of the seven, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs. Now key to note, the apostles, Christ and the apostles had done wonders and signs up to this point. And now here you have Stephen, this man who is full of the Holy Spirit, actually doing signs and wonders among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, and of Cyrenians and of Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now listen, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So he's speaking in Holy Spirit power. He's speaking preaching forth the word of God, the gospel. And they can't compete with this wisdom and knowledge. Why? Because it was the very words of God coming forth from his mouth. Then they secretly, and this is huge, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous, that is irreverent, disrespectful things, words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, 
Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, real quick points. This reminds us of somebody. Who gathered false witnesses to take him before a kangaroo court to get him falsely accused and punished for something he was not guilty of? Reminds us of Jesus. So we see Jesus in Stephen, a picture really of what had taken place in what's going on, and these are false accusations. Now, was he blaspheming God, the law, and the temple? No, he was preaching the truth of the Word of God. He was probably saying that Jesus was equal with God, that no one comes to the Father except through Him, and that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works, lest anyone should boast. And that hit them sideways. And so, as a result, they had these false accusations made against him. So, that gets us through here. So what do we see here? He's chosen as one of the seven. He's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's seized. He's set up by the Jews. And notice too that it says that he showed the glory of God. The glory of God. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The glory of God that had been revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration by Jesus. They saw He glowed. Uh, Moses on Mount Sinai's face glowed, right? So they had to cover him because he was so bright. And here it says that his face, as he's speaking, as he's being brought before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council consisting of 70 or 71 Jewish elders, that his face was like the face of an angel. So his, his face is actually lit up with the glory of God. And you know, I would like to think if somebody came glowing in my midst, that I would say, hey, something's up with that guy. There's something different going on here. I can't put my finger on it just yet. Yeah, they acknowledge this, that the glory of God was beaming from him. And yet, and yet, look what happens in verse 7. That gets us to chapter 7. The high priest said, so it's like this court. We could get the court visual here. Stephen is drug in by these people falsely accusing him. They tell this group, this council of elders, the Sanhedrin, and the high priest, the chief priest, stands up and goes, are these things true? Are these accusations that they're making against you true? So it's like they put him on the stand. True or false? You know, tell us the truth. And... He asked, are these things true? And here's what Stephen said. So that gives, gets us to Stephen's speech, which goes from chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 53. This is Stephen. Some of your uh, Bibles may say something to the effect of Stephen's speech. Stephen's defense. He's giving a defense here. I want to call it Stephen's sermon because you better believe he gets to preaching. And he don't just get to preaching, as they say. He gets to meddling. And so toes are stomped on, and the council doesn't like it. And we're going to see what happens as a result of this very powerful sermon that he speaks and preaches in Holy Spirit power. Now, this is the longest speech recorded in Acts, which again is funny that I'm the slowest preacher and the pastor, uh, the slowest teacher of all, and I'm given the longest chapters and the longest text. But what's going on here throughout this speech, and this again is a broad stroke understanding of what's taking place here, it is a selective summary. This is, this is huge. It is a selective summary of the Old Testament, the history of Israel from its inception 
It's salvation history, how God has saved and moved among His people since the beginning with sections that discuss Jewish heroes, the patriarchs. In verses 2 through 8, we see the call of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jews. So that's what's discussed there. In verses 9 through 16, we see the story of Joseph. And I don't like to say story. I want to say we see the historical account. It did happen of a man named Joseph. And then we get in verses 17 through 44, we read of Moses and the exodus from Egypt. And let me point out that Moses or Joseph and Moses are kind of given a, a, a fuller uh, dealt with foot more fully, and the reason is because Joseph and Moses are viewed as a type. Well, what is a type? You have a type and an antitype, a picture in the physical reality. You have the shadow and the substance. And so, when we see Joseph and when we see Moses. We see pictures of what Jesus is going to do in reality and to its fulfillment. Just like we see kind of Jesus was showing what was going to happen to Stephen and what was taking place with him, with these people gathering and dragging him, falsely accusing him. We see, oh, that's, that's what happened to Jesus. It's happening to him. Well, look at it this way. What is taking place in the Old Testament is what is going to fully come to reality in the New Testament. So it's a shadow that points to the substance, Christ being the reality, the antitype, the physical reality. And so how do we see Christ in Joseph? How do we see Christ in, in the life of Moses? Well, he, they were raised up by God, right? They were set apart as God's messengers. They were rejected by Israel. They were exalted as deliverers and saviors and redeemers of their people, right? So who is our ultimate savior? Who is our ultimate redeemer? Who is our ultimate deliverer? So see, they were pointing to something greater in their lives, pointing to something greater, and the greater thing was Jesus. He was going to fulfill these, be the supreme redeemer, the supreme deliverer, the supreme rescuer and redeemer. Now, in verses 45 through 50... Uh, Stephen discusses Israel uh, from, from entering, the, entering the promised land, Canaan, or from Canaan forward. And, um, and he's, he is showing, he's pointing forth the apostasy or the continuing consistent, uh, historically consistent and continuously repeated apostasy that climaxes ultimately in verses 51 through 53 at their present rejection of Jesus Christ. There are the true Messiah. So Israel's continued repeated apostasy is what he's pointing out, climaxing in the life of Jesus. Now I want to, I want to pause here and say footnote. <coughs> Excuse me. Because we're going to be looking in more broad strokes, uh, I want to point out and emphasize that some of the quotes he makes is not found in the Old Testament. So where is he quoting from? He's quoting from Jewish tradition at times. He's quoting from extra-biblical texts being like histories, Jewish historians, histories that they would have been very familiar with and known. 
He quotes the Septuagint as a Hellenistic Jew, spoke Greek. He would quote the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So why do I say that? Because sometimes the wording here is not the exact wording that you're going to find in the Hebrew Bible or our Old Testament. Some things recorded here are not found in Scripture in the Old Testament, but it's recorded in the New Why do I make this point? Because some people say, see, it's not inspired by God. And and there's, there's mistakes, contradictions. Hear me. None of this is contradictory. None of these numbers that he gives, though this, it may be numbered here and there. They number different. People counted differently. In different texts, it's recorded differently because they used a different numerical system. Um, so there's different wording in Greek and Hebrew, but... The point is the Jews that he's addressing knew exactly what he was saying. That's why you don't see in the Sanhedrin raised their hand and said, wait, that's not in Scripture, because they knew the history of Israel. They knew these texts. They knew these traditions. They knew these words. So what am I saying? Scripture in its original manuscripts is inerrant and infallible without error. And so this is true. So don't let the number five, if it says 70 here or 75 there, don't say, I'm leaving the faith because that's, they're five off. No, you just don't understand it correctly. The author penned it exactly as God desired him to pen it, and they understood exactly what he's saying. And if you're confused, guess what? You're confused, but this ain't confused. If you, so don't, don't think, don't start playing the, this verse contradicts game because it ain't going to work because it does not contradict. It is, in fact, true. So if I don't point out certain things where it says this person bought this land and this person bought that land or this number and that number, just hear me. It's true. What they say and what is penned in these words is true. So with that little addendum given here... Um, let me go back to his defense. What, what happens in verses 51 through 53? Again, he discusses Israel's continuously repeated apostasy, climaxing at their present rejection of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, their Messiah. His hearers were the truly guilty blasphemers. So they were guilty of the very things that they were accusing Stephen of. That's, that's what's up. And they're the real guilty party. They resisted the Holy Spirit. They murdered God's righteous one. They failed to keep God's law. And as a result of Stephen responding to his charges by turning all of these charges on his accusers, he is stoned to death. Um, Costly discipleship, right? He pays the ultimate price. This is the true cost of discipleship. And so he's stoned, he's taken out, and he's stoned by the order of the Sanhedrin or by this mob, but they had wholehearted approval of his being stoned. And following speaking the truth about Christ, we see a huge demonstration of the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him because he shows the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ is with his body until his body goes to sleep. We'll look at what that means, the sleep of death, and his soul and his spirit his spirit ascends to Christ. So God is with him, the glory of God is with him, and he is speaking forth God's word until he sees God himself that day. So 
Here are the main themes. That's just a quick summary. Here are the main themes, the key things that we see in Stephen's speech. These are his overall points that his speech, his sermons, that he makes clear to them. This is how they would have heard it. Now, now we're here in 2023, Americans sitting here. How would the Jews have heard it that day? Well, here's what they would have heard. And I've already said this before. This is what they would have understood him saying. Israel had historically and repeatedly rejected God's anointed messengers all throughout their history. The ultimate example of this was seen in their rejection of Christ, the Messiah. They had rejected the prophets, and then they reject Christ ultimately. Secondly, God is sovereign. That's, that's what he's showing them here. God is supreme. Rather, he's zooming in the lens and saying, God is sovereign over our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. His point is, guys, gals, tents, and temples made with human hands cannot or hold or contain our God. So they're guilty of trying to put God in a box because where was the only place you could go to worship God? The temple. Where did they say that God dwelt? The temple. He's like, oh no. God rules it all. He is in control of all creation. And so you cannot put him in a box. So their error was trying to confine God to the temple. But Stephen's summary of salvation history here that he gives in chapter 7 of Acts, and that's seen in these Old Testament scriptures that he, quote, that he quotes in his examples that are given, it proves that the Jewish readers' attempts to be, and hearers' attempts were futile. They were an impossibility. They could not contain God in the temple. The heavens are the Lord. The universe is the Lord. All of creation is the Lord and the Creator. God is greater than anything created. He cannot be contained. He alone is God. And so with saying that, he's also pointing out, you just can't keep him in Israel. He's going to everywhere. He's God everywhere. Here's another thing I want us to note. So those are his two main things that they would have been hearing throughout this speech, this defense, this sermon. But what I want you to know is I'm reading these things. Some things are just leaping, leaping off the page. Do you notice the centrality? Well, we hadn't looked at the verses yet, but I hope that when we look at the verses, this is a preface. When we look at the verses, I hope you can notice the centrality of Christ. In the Old Testament, the centrality of Christ in everything that he's preaching. And this takes me back, it reminds us to what Jesus said to the Jews in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, You examine the scriptures. He's speaking mainly of the Old Testament scriptures. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then listen to what he says. And it's those very scriptures that testify about me. He was the fulfillment of these things. Those were pictures. He's the, those were shadows. He's the substance. He's the main theme of the Old Testament. Some people say, well, I'm a red letter Christian. Those red letters flow from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. If it's in the Old Testament, it's pointing this way to the cross. If it's in the New Testament, it's pointing that way to the cross. But it's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus. 
And that's what we see here. And it's, it's wow. He keeps Christ central in his preaching. And let's just say for those who preach and teach and speak forth the word of God, always keep Christ at the center. It's all about Jesus. So, what do we do here? We go to the cliff, little bird, and we jump. And we fly without these notes for the moment. And we look together at this chapter and run, hopefully, rapidly through with a little bullet points, boom, 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 here and there. Little rapid fire, little, little things. But remember, we're going to come across areas that some people say, see, see, see. It contradicts. No, no, no. It's the Word of God. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's true. Not contradictory. It's not wrong. You are. He says, <coughs> addressing this question, are these accusations that these people are making against you true? He says, brothers, and he's not speaking brothers in Christ, he's speaking to the Jews, these, these Hellenistic Jews, these Jewish people. He said, and fathers, hear me. Listen up to what I have to say. It's extremely important. That's not in Scripture. I just put that there. That's what he's getting at. The God of glory, God our Father, appeared to our father Abraham. Why is he the father? He's the father of the Israelites. He's the father of the Jews. All the Jewish nation, all the Israelites come from Abraham. And it says, and the brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, well, here's one of those little things some people say, was it before he moved from Ur in, Mes- in, in Mesopotamia or after he lived in Haran? Either way, it's all they understood exactly where he was, when he was, and why he was there. And the point was God called him from a pagan land to trust him and to follow him. And he did it. He did it. By faith, he did it. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. What's he talking about? Canaan, the promised land, Israel. He says, and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans away from this pagan nation. He lived in Haran. And after his father died, his father's name was Terah, not Terah, Terah, T-E-R-A-H, I think. And it says, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Some debate about when Terah died and the numbers about when Terah died and all that, blah, blah, blah. It's not important. What's important is they knew and it's accurate and it was accurate to them according to the numbers they were counting. And so why do I keep saying that? Because it's bunk that people would deny the faith and doubt the authenticity historical accuracy of Scripture when it is absolutely true. And so, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And so, they came into this land. They're they're in Israel. And so, this promised land where they now dwelled. And he says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, what's going on is he's just pointing the fact that this promise was given. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, 
You can go back there and read it in depth. I don't have time to break away from that. Obviously, there could be countless sermons based on that one text and that one covenant. But he appears to him, makes this covenant with him, and it says, through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Not just the Jewish nations, the Gentile nations will be blessed. And he gives them promises, you're, you're going to enter into this land, and it says, notice, that he did not get to possess even a foot. He did not get to enter into the promised land. Why? He died before the promise, but he still walked by faith, trusting that God was going to fulfill this very thing even before he got to the promised land. And, and it says, though he had no child. So how can he have a, a family, an inheritance or all of this heritage, these people, as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea, if he didn't have one. And he says, I believe. And he followed him. And so he died, though he didn't receive the promise, but guess what? His kids did. His kids got to enter into that land that God promised. And so God was faithful to his promise. And it says, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners, visitors, just passing through in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Who is he talking about? We're just going through the book of Genesis right now. Here's your homework. Read all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the 39 books of the Old Testament, and you'll be caught up to speed with what he's summarizing right here in this small text. Though it seems large, it's a lot shorter than 39 books. And so he's summing up this history of Israel, the salvation history. He's talking about the Egyptians. The Egyptians are going to enslave the Jews on their way to the promised land. They had not yet entered it. Key to note too, God is with His people. God is with Abraham as he's walking through these pagan lands. God is with His people as they're walking through these pagan lands. God is always faithful to His promises and God's prophecies will be fulfilled 100% of the time. He's faithful to His covenant. He's faithful to His promise. He's faithful to His covenant people. So what happens after they enslave them and they afflict them for 400 years in Egypt? God says in verse 7, I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Well, in summarized in that, you have all the plagues, everything that they endured, let my people go. No, he didn't. All that. And then they go out. Leave. They leave, you have the parting of the Red Sea, and he says, he says, after that they shall come out and worship me in this place, in Israel. They're on the way to the promised land. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. You could go back and read Genesis 17 if you want to learn more about that. But he's setting apart a people, saying, These are my people, these are Abraham's covenant people, and he gave him the covenant circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. And circumcised, he was faithful to that covenant promise, that agreement there. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob later became known as what? Israel. Jacob's name was Israel. And Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. These are the twelve tribes of Israel. And I won't go back. Y'all can read about them again in the book of Genesis. But Jacob is Israel. He's the promised child. Uh, Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and then the twelve sons of Israel. So he's breaking all that history down again that they would have been very familiar with. And the patriarchs, the fathers, these twelve tribes, these other eleven brothers, because Joseph was one of the twelve, 
children, the 12 tribes. It says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. What do we see here? We see Jews rejecting a Jew that was set apart from God, that was a special messenger of God. Remember sharing his dream? They didn't like that dream. And the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt, a pagan land. Notice, Stephen says, but God was with him. God was with him. Why? He was God's messenger. He was going to be used by God, full of the Spirit, to speak for the truth of the Word of God, to lead this nation, to lead Israel. And he rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor. Boy, that's a ton of stuff going on there. You've got Potiphar's wife, you've got imprisonment, you've got being wrong, betrayed, forgotten, all of this stuff that's going on. And, and then, but let's go to Genesis chapter 50. Joseph in the end says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. So that you and I could be sustained. Who? The Israelites. God had that purpose and plan in a pagan land, was working all things to get them to Canaan, to get them to the promised land, to get them. But you have... Israel, you have Jewish people, the brothers, their very brothers, betraying him and selling him into slavery. But he rises up as a savior, as a type of redeemer, a deliverer. And it says that he had favor with God. God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and grace and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Do you see that? So this redeemer, this type deliverer, this type savior is not only the redeemer in ruling over these Jews now, but even the pagans, Jews and Gentiles. Oh, we see images. Ah, oh, he's the deliverer, their savior, and is pointing to the one who would be ultimate deliverer, ultimate savior, redeemer. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. There's where some say 70 different numerical systems used there, Septuagint and Old Testament Hebrew, so still infallible, inerrant, and perfectly true and accurate, non-contradictory. Verse 15, And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamor and Shechem. And let me just go ahead and say, people argue about that, who bought what and who was buried where. And what he's doing is summarizing it. You know, he's, he's obviously not giving every single detail that could be given. It was not necessary. He's summing up things to prove a point. This is not contradictory. And it says verse 17 and following, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, what is he talking about? Entrance into Canaan, entrance into the promised land, the fulfillment of that covenant that he made, or not the fulfillment, but a little bit more fulfillment of that promise that he had given to Abraham. It says, The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. What happened? Joseph... Uh, had favor of the Pharaoh, but then after Joseph died and time went on and time passed by and the Israelites grew, 
Joseph was forgotten. And this bad Pharaoh rises up. And what is he going to do with this increasing number of foreigners in their land? These Israelites in Egypt, this pagan land. It says it in verse 19, He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. So do you remember that? They were to cast their children into the water. They were to throw the infants into the sea, or not the sea, the river. And this time Moses was born. So focus shifts. Abraham and Joseph were going to Moses. He was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. That's just another way of saying this is God's messenger. God's got a special purpose for this guy in the history in the history of salvation in the history of the nation of Israel he was beautiful found grace in God's sight and he was brought up for 3 months in his father's house and when he was exposed Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son there's a lot just summarized in there right they built a basket they put him in water do y'all know the word moses literally means drawn from water that's where they got moses out of the water Because that was the only way that the Israelites were able to save him, protect him, though these pagan nations were trying to snuff out God's plan. You ain't going to do it. And so down the water comes Moses. And not only that, hey, I'm going to let the enemy raise him. (laughs) Oh, wow. We serve a mighty God. And so it says Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians... He was raised in a secular situation. He learned a lot about secular things. And then when I say this, does it go ding, ding, ding in your ear? He was mighty in his words and deeds. What did he tell Jesus? Or or what did he tell God when he appears to him? He says, go to the people and tell them. He says, I'm not an eloquent speaker. This says he's an eloquent speaker. Maybe he was mighty in pagan words, but not in godly words at the time. You know, maybe that's the reason. But it says he was mighty in his words and deeds secularly. There's explanations for these things, not contradictory. When he was 40 years old, and and, and what Stephen does, it's awesome. I mean, dude is under pressure. You you got he is standing before the Sanhedrin, and can you just he's doing all of this systematic. Let me just give you a systematic uh, off the hip. And when I say that, I use almost sarcasm because the Holy Spirit's pumping them words through him, recalling and giving him every utterance that he said. He breaks down Moses' life in 40-year segments. Here's from birth to this. When he encounters uh, Pharaoh, here's this. And Midian exiting uh, Midian and then coming back after the burning bush experience and then all of the standing before Pharaoh and exiting. So he breaks Moses' life down in 40 in forty year segments. And it says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart. Oh, the Lord put it there. The Lord put it there. Something stirred. The Holy Spirit was stirring him. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He realized that he was a a, a Hebrew baby, a Jew. He realized this. And so he goes to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, one of the Egyptians was whipping up on him, right? Beating him up. He defended the oppressed man. Ah, there's somebody standing up for the, the Jew in a foreign land. There's a Savior saving His brother, 
the Israelites. We, we can see Christ in here. We can see pictures of Christ. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand. Do you, do you hear that? He supposed this. Shouldn't it show the Jews that this camaraderie, that I'm here to rescue, that I'm here to help, that I'm here to save? But look what it says. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling. So you have Jew fighting Jew, Hebrew fighting Hebrew. And he comes up and he tries to reconcile them saying, Men, you're brothers. You're both Jews. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Ah, you have a Jew rejecting God's messenger right here for the first time. You have a Jew rejecting a Redeemer, someone sent to save them and help them to rescue them. And then the guy says, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled. He became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Well, obviously things are left out there. He met a girl and they had children. You know, there's a summary. Summary. Stephen's summarizing it. And he's on the hot seat. I mean, give the guy a break. He's, 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 he's about to die. These are his last words. And so he's summarizing it. Here, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame. This is, I believe, Exodus chapter 3. In a flame, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look, and there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. Don't you love it how he's quoting the covenants and quoting the patriarchs through the promise was going to be passed? And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So here's his messenger. God's divinely set apart and picked an appointed messenger to go to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected. Ha! There it is again. They rejected this messenger sent by God said, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. There it is. And is pointing to Christ. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And some people debate, was it angel? Was it God? Okay, in the New Testament, in Galatians 3, I believe it is. In Galatians somewhere and in Hebrews, it talks about how angels gave the, the law, were messengers of the law. Anyway, don't debate it. Don't worry about it. They understood it. It's correct again. And so he received the law from God, possibly, probably through this mediation of angels that's pointed out here. And, and it says, this man led them out. Uh, this man led them out performing wonders. And, or, or, goodness, I lost my place. Let's just go back and start at verse 30, 30, 35 again. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
this man led them out performing wonders and signs. Now that's key. Doesn't that show what Jesus did too? Didn't Jesus show wonders and signs? Well, now you've got Moses that's showing all of these wonders and signs in Egypt, in, in this pagan land, at the Red Sea when he parts it, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. I believe he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 18 right there. I think somewhere he's quoting the Old Testament. And who's he talking about? God's going to raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He's pointing to Jesus. He's predicting Messiah right there. God's going to raise up a prophet like me, but he's greater than me. From your brothers, from the Hebrews. He's going to be a Jew. He's going to rise up. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. With our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. That's the receiving of the law. Moses receives the law. He gives it. Again, a lot being summed up here. But look at verse 39. And again, this is, this is what's digging in their side. This is, this is where he's rubbing a little salt in the wound here. He says, our fathers refused to obey him. Wow. Wow. Now you have Stephen's face glowing. They don't believe him. They don't obey him. You have Moses doing these mighty works and powers. They don't believe him. They don't obey him. Our fathers refused to obey him. They refused to obey God's law that he had given them. It says that they thrust him aside and in their heart they turned to Egypt. They went back to their pagan ways, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up from out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They reject him, the God-sent messenger that had given them the law of the true and living God. And what did they do? They returned their idolatry. Stephen's pointing out, do you see what you've done historically, repeatedly? You don't follow God, you deny Him, you reject Him ultimately, you reject His messengers, you reject His word, you reject His will, you reject His way, and you run back to your idolatry, your sin. Just like our fathers had refused to obey Him. And they make these gods. And, and, he, and he is pointing out here in the gods that he select, just the amount, what, how, how do I phrase it, the amount of abomination, the abominable, abominableness, of the, the sickness of what they did by name-dropping these gods and what they made to worship. It says, they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and were rejecting the works of their hands, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Not reject, they were rejoicing in this idol that they had formed and made. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And let me just go ahead and make a little footnote here. Go back and read Romans 1. We live in a Romans 1 society. People who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God turns them over. God just lets them go. And I want you to follow the steps of that turn and where it leads. It don't go to a good place, brothers and sisters. The degradation of, 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 of idolatry, the slippery slope of idolatry, he gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, I believe he's quoting Amos here, the prophet Amos. He said, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So basically God's saying, Yeah, you claim to worship me, but here's what you were really doing. You took up the tent of Molech, Moloch, 
Molech, Moloch, uh, he is the Canaanite sun god known for uh, being offered children, child sacrifices. And here are the Israelites making these same sacrifices to this Canaanite pagan sun god. It is sick. After they had seen the Red Sea parted, after they had eaten the manna and the quails and followed God and saw Him in a pillar of fire and smoke in the clouds, all of these things that Moses had done, they go back to sacrificing their babies to an idol. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. How soon we forget, how quick we return to our idolatry and reject the message of God, the messengers of God, the message of God. And so that's what he's pointing out to them. And the star of your God, Raphon, that's probably Rapha, which is the Egyptian word for Saturn. They worship Saturn. The images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This is the, another one of those things that's debated. Was it Damascus, Babylon? Anyway, this word, whatever word is used, either Babylon or Damascus and Amos are here. It's referring to the same thing. God judged them severely because of their idolatry. He cast them out. He exiled them. And that's what Stephen's pointing out. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations for God, drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, and he's quoting the Old Testament again, Heaven is my throne, Isaiah, I believe. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house you, will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so what's he saying here? He's just pointing out one temple was made to be moved. It contained the law of Moses, the law of God. It was movable. And then here comes David, and it's cool how he's continuing to trace those that he made covenants with. David, Solomon, all of these things. But what is the key thing he's pointing here? The temple, the tabernacle that was movable, and the immovable temple that was there, not that important. Don't, don't bank on that is, don't confine God there. That's what he's saying. Don't put too much emphasis on the temple like you're doing because that's why he quotes Isaiah. He says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or why is, or, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? In fact, Solomon in the building of the temple pointed out that God is this God, not one that just dwells here. And they had forgotten it and they tried to contain him here. And he says, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. God is, is, Ruling all, sovereign over all, salvation. He, he's sovereign over the salvation of Israel and the Gentile, all the world. And then that gets back, and I, and I note, I note the time, <clears throat> and I'm, and I'm really gonna, really gonna go fast. Look at how he responds after he gives this. This is where he really hits home. Oh, the toes are stomping right here. Wouldn't you love it to have somebody look at you and go, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resist the Holy No, I'm putting a little more grit in it than probably what Stephen... He spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that. He was speaking exactly what God would say had God Himself been there. This He's quoting Old Testament uh, digs. 
that Jesus would use, that the Old Testament would use to point them their constant rejection of God and His messengers. He says, it's stubborn. If you're stiff-necked, you're stubborn. So He says, you're stubborn. You're stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, meaning outward they looked good. They had gone through the uh, physical circumcision outwardly, but inwardly, as Jesus says, you're no more than a whitewashed tomb. You look beautiful outside, but on the inside you're dead. And you're full of dead men's bones and all in cleanliness. And that's exactly what Stephen is saying to these people. Oh, it hurt the scribes and Pharisees when Jesus said it. It's hurting these mugs now when he's dropping these, these names. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's saying you're dead to God, really. I mean, that's what he's saying. You're dead to God. You don't know God. You ain't following God. You're dead to Him. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did historically, repeatedly. So do you. You're guilty. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who? Jesus. Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. They, they were pointing to Jesus saying He's coming and here's how He's going to do it. And what did they do to Him? They repeated history. They, they betrayed Him. They murdered Him. You who received the law. I mean, God gave you, the Jews, His very law, delivered by God, uh, mediated by angels. And guess what? You didn't even keep it then. Oh, oh wow. He unleashes on them right there. I think last time I preached, it was like a drop-the-mic moment. This is one of the ultimate drop-the-mics. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised. What he does is the, the one that's being accused becomes the accuser and stands and puts them on trial and says, oh, you, you should be the ones up here. You're guilty. You're guilty. Uh, as the prophet told David, you're the man. You're the man. I'm not guilty of this as you accuse me of. These are false accusations. You're the ones. You're the very ones. You're guilty of what you condemn me of doing. And what do they do? They repented and turned from their sin, trusted in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Is that, was that what it says? The truth hurt. But just like we said in Sunday school, better to have somebody stand before you and tell the truth, even if it costs you your life than to just tell you what you want to hear and you be doomed and damned forever. And so this is the last speech really that is given to the Jews before the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. This is a huge situation we have here. What happened? And I'm hurrying. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, Again, he's, he's got that Holy Spirit presence, power, peace. He gazes into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Oh, could you imagine? The heavens opened up right before him and he can see it. And he can see it. And he says, he says this, you know, he's probably just looking up and saying, what is he looking at? What's going on? And he says out loud, behold, I see the heavens opened. 
And the Son of Man, he's quoting from Daniel, nobody in the New Testament, this is the only time a man other than Jesus himself uses that phrase from Daniel. It's what Jesus called himself, the Son of Man. He's, and, and, and they knew that, and they were upset at this. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Interesting he mentions him, almost as if to say, remember that name. You're going to hear more about him later. In fact, the majority of the rest of the book of Acts is going to deal with this guy and the guy that's in opposition to this. And it says, and they were stoning Stephen. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Have we heard that before? Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Jesus. We see Jesus and Stephen's dying. He'd been conformed to the image of Christ. And when they saw him, they saw what Jesus had said from the cross, cross himself. And it says, and falling to his knees as the stones are hitting him and coming. He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Have we ever seen that before? Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ah! Oh! Wow! And when he said this, he fell asleep. I love how they say that. We just go to sleep. The body goes to sleep. Sleep is temporary. These bodies are going to wake up one day. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As his body fell asleep, his soul entered into that heaven that he was seeing. His faith became sight. Ah, man. And they were witnessing this, and they still... Wow. Application, and then we'll be done. When I read this, just how, how can this apply? I mean, it's huge to read this and, and those key points he's getting at. How does it apply to us today? This is what I want you to know. Jesus was and is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. The call is to repent, to turn from your sin and to believe in Him. Don't be like these Jews. I'm the messenger. Here's the message. Believe it. Turn to it, repent, believe, and be saved. Do not resist and be a stiff-necked, stubborn, uncircumcised at heart and ear unbeliever. Hear me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name that's been given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Don't resist or reject the truth. This is true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Here's another one, bullet point. Believe the gospel. Okay, that's not a bullet point. That goes with the last one. Here's a bullet point. All of God's promises, prophecies, all of His Word is true. It is the power of God for salvation to believe to the Jew and also to the Greek. 2 Timothy 3.16, believe all Scripture is written by God. God breathed is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for rebuke. Uh, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped. So it is the power of God for salvation. All of God's word and promises are true. The historicity of the Old Testament and the New is true. The prophecies have been or will happen 100% of the time simply to say God's word is truth and to call you to taste and see for yourself. The Lord is good. If you put Jesus on trial in His book on trial, He's going to win it if you're honest with the evidence and if you're honest with yourself. The centrality of Christ, again, is a point. The centrality of Christ in preaching. 
the centrality of Christ in teaching and proclamation, the centrality of Christ in the Scripture, as I've already said, it's all about Jesus. The Old, the Old Testament points to the cross. The New Testament points back to the cross, but Christ is the, the author. He's the subject. It, it's a book about Him. And to Him be the glory. He's our only Savior, our only Redeemer. He is our Deliverer. And as the Bible says, He will save His people from their sins. So, that brings us back to what do we see in the... Oh, goodness, sorry. Uh, what do we see in the life of Stephen? Courage under fire. As I've already said, courage under fire. Holy boldness. In, through, and because of Christ. I'm reminded of what Martin Luther would say. And he faced a similar scenario standing before a council, speaking truth, not backing away. Here I stand on God's Word. I can do no other. Um, stand up for the truth. Oh, this is what he says. Peace if possible. Truth at all cost. We live in a society that says, be tolerant. Be tolerant. Tolerance is not love. Truth is love. Tell people truth. Peace if possible, truth at all costs. Stand up for the truth, even if you stand alone and let it be known if you're in Christ, you're never alone. The Holy Spirit is with you and in you and will lead you and guide you. You stand up for truth even if you stand alone. The blood of the martyr, this is another saying, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and His church. Do you know what happens when Stephen gets stoned? Here's a little spoiler trickling into, hey, why, why not just going into chapter 8 a little bit? Saul approved the stoning of Stephen, but as a result, they fled when persecution came upon the church. And as the Christians fled into the Gentile realm, the Gentile world outside of Israel, guess what they carried with them? The gospel. Guess who came to Christ as a result of that? Those Gentiles. The blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. You try to snuff out Christianity, though man and Satan seek to snuff out Christianity, persecution is always going to perpetuate the gospel. In Romans 8, 28, as I mentioned in there, is again true. God is causing all things to work for the ultimate good, ultimate good of us and the ultimate glory of God. Even in the stoning of Stephen, how can that be a good thing? The gospel got to you because of that. How could good come out of Christ being crucified on the cross? He saved you in dying. Wow. Again, what a mighty God we serve. Blood of the martyrs, see the church, though man, okay, said that, said that. God is sovereign. We see that in this. In all of salvation history, God is working according to His purposes and plans, all things according to the counsel of His own will. Um, so He is sovereign. And, and, and this, is, this is the last, last thing, kind of the last little blip. Be a faithful witness. I mean, that's, that's the call. If we read this and see what He did, and then look at our life. Be, be a faithful witness. Be like Stephen, be, who sought to be like who? Jesus. He was conformed more to the image of Christ, so much so that listening to what he's saying as the stones are hitting him in his face. Ha! Huh. Wow. Be like Jesus. May God conform us more to the image of Christ, just like he did Stephen. And may we too fear God more. Fear God more than man. God who can destroy both body and soul in hell rather than man who can only kill the body. And may we remember as believers, and boy, Stephen can say it, I ought to live as Christ, but dies what? Gain. 
I seek gain. I want gain. And so to live is Christ and to die is gain. So may we live this life to and for the glory of God until we, like Stephen, have our faith in in sight until we see our Savior with our own eyes and enter into glory to be forever with Him all because of Him to the praise of His glory alone. Amen.